0: Welcome to this sermon podcast from Myo Baptist Church, and thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that God's Word will be an encouragement to you and a reminder that the Bible has all the answers to living a successful and fulfilled life. Again, thanks for listening. We now join the service in progress. Chapter 4 is the last chapter of of Colossians. So we are on the home stretch of finishing this uh, wonderful book of the Bible. Tonight, as we look at Colossians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6, and we're going to emphasize what you're seeing up here on the screen behind me, with all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance. But before we get to those verses, it starts off with... Paul kind of finishing up on what he, how he finished chapter 3. Do you remember in chapter 3, he was talking about husbands loving your wives and wives submitting to your husbands and children obeying your parents. And then it ended talking about employees, the kind of employee you should be. Not just giving eye service, you know, don't be two-faced, but be genuine and work hard all the time whether the boss is there or not. That's the way chapter 3 ended. But chapter 4 tonight begins, though, with one verse Talking to the employers, or the masters, if you will. Begins in verse number one, Colossians chapter four, verse number one. It says, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. I just love how the fact that the Bible covers all the bases. We are so blessed to be saved. We are so blessed to understand that this is the Word of God. So many people don't believe that, and therefore they miss out on... You know, this is the, this is life's manual. You know, you get a car, it's got a manual in the glove compartment, and, you know, you, you, you ignore that manual to your own peril. But if you read it, you know, most people, when they get a car, a new car, even if it's a new used car, you know, I always do. I go through the manual. I want to know about it. I don't want to make any mistakes. We have a manual for life. I just pity people that don't understand the value of what they can have in their hands if they don't have it already. And what I love is how the Bible, you know, it can be as deep theologically as you want to go. But it can be so very, very practical as we just read in verse number one. And then he changes gears a second time in verse number two. Verse number one, he's talking about masters and servants and then in verse number two, he tells the people, he's getting ready to start wrapping it up here. He's wrapping up this letter. Remember, they were dealing with, with heresies in the church and false teachers in the church. And that was his main reason to address them. So now he's starting to wrap it up. And at the end, he's going to get real personal. Tell so, Just like us, he's going to tell people, say so, tell so-and-so, I said hello, and that kind of thing. We're not quite there yet. But he does tell them this as he's wrapping it up. Verse number two, continue in prayer. And watching the same with thanksgiving. You hear me say it often because it's so true. That the Bible, from cover to cover, the the one thread that's woven all the way through well, it's not the one thread, it's a thread that's woven all the way through there is prayer. I mean prayer is a big deal in the Bible, which tells me that it ought to be a big deal in our lives. You know, it's always coming up. It, it comes up in Genesis and all the way through. And if it's not labeled as prayer, it's just people talking to God or God talking to people. And that's prayer, whether it describes it as prayer or not. Anytime you talk to the Lord, it, it's prayer. It's a big deal in the Bible. And it ought to be a big deal in our lives. Even though our flesh fights us, and even though we're weak, and even though. Probably one of the biggest battle areas for all of us is prayer. We know we ought to pray. We know the importance of it. And yet for so many people, it's a struggle. But yet let, let us understand that the emphasis on prayer in the Bible should motivate us to work through those dry seasons, those times of drought, or those times when maybe we drift away from being the kind of prayer warrior that we know we ought to be. So as he wraps it up, he's encouraging them to pray. That applies to you and I today. And then he changes gears in three verses a third time. This time, verses 3 through 6. He says in verse number 3, With all praying also, he says, I want you to pray. But while you're praying, pray for us also. Pray for me, the Apostle Paul. For what? That God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. He's in prison when he's writing this. That I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And then he concludes in verses 5 and 6 by saying, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. In verses 3 through 6, he changes the subject to witnessing, to soul winning. He says, pray for me that I will do it right. And he says, pray for yourselves that you will do it right. But let's look real quick at the first two verses. We're going to emphasize verses 3 through 6, but we don't want to skip over verse 1 without acknowledging it to some degree. In, ver- in verse number 1, he says this again. "Masters, given to your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. He's saying to Christian employers, treat employees fairly and properly. It is incumbent upon a Christian employee to work hard, whether the boss is watching or not, to be faithful in your responsibilities and in your duties. But with that comes an admonition to employers who have employees, who have people working for them. Treat them properly. Treat them justly. Treat them fairly. I mean, that's one of the great blessings of being a Christian. We, we have it spelled out for us. You know, there, there, I'm sure there's lots of worldly carnal employer. In fact, we know that it's been this case through all of history that will take advantage of people. We'll we'll put burdens on people's backs beyond what they're capable of doing, and compensate them with some uh, meager, miserly little wage, and some of them living in the lap of 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 luxury. I mean, that's just you know, and the world they can do it. You know, I mean, in their mind, I can do what I want to do. There's nobody. There's no God. I'm not going to answer to anybody. I'm not going to pay for my greed. You know, it's just this life, and it's over, it's over. That's the way they think, folks. But you introduce the word of God into the world and telling those people, no, that's not okay. You need to treat people right. You need to compensate them fairly. You need to treat them honorably. That kind of discourse enters the world only through God's word. How wonderful is that? So how much more should you and I be trying to get people to convert to Christ to have more people listening to God's Word and listen, and living God's Word and, and the world becomes a better place? When all employees are working hard and honestly and diligently and employers are compensating them fairly. In a lost world, lots of employees, because some of you have worked with them, there's lots of employees that goof off. Boss isn't around. You know, some poor guy or gal is outside taking a smoke break or whatever. I, you know, I'm not working until he gets back, you know. And he's cheating his employer, you know. And then the worldly, ungodly employer, you know, is cracking the whip and, you know, not compensating people fairly. The world gets ugly. Introduce light into the world. In, in, introduce the grace of God into the world where workers are going to do the honorable thing and the right thing. And the bosses are going to do the honorable thing and the right thing. That's our only hope, folks. And that light coming into the world isn't going to come through any other source other than Christians like you and me in churches like, like ours. That's why I commend you for being here tonight, because you're going to be better equipped for tomorrow than those that aren't here tonight. And I know that some are sick, some have to work, I understand that. Uh, Some live down some dark, muddy roads and maybe thought it best to stay home. I'm not quibbling with that. But for folks that could come and should come and don't come... They're the ones missing out. I mean, the world's a better place. When, we, when we're saved, we know this is God's word, and we're trying to live it. The workplace just becomes a better place. It's not this hostility, labor, and management kind of, kind of stuff. One quote concerning that verse says, Bosses, make sure you're acting justly, lovingly, equitably. Sure, you might be in a place of power and prominence now, but never forget, you will one day stand before your master. And give account of what went on through your life and in your heart. Can you imagine how our economy would change if everybody was saved? Can you imagine how our economy would change if employees just worked diligently, hard, showed up on time, were honest? Weren't stealing tools from the shop? You know, weren't weren't cheating their em- employer? And employers valuing their their employees, and rewarding them justly and properly and wanting the best for them and and uh, caring about them. What a better world the world would be. So that's verse number one. Then in verse number two, he reminds them to be much in prayer. Like I said, chapter four now, we're coming to the end in just a few verses. He's wrapping things up as we would do in a letter. He's kind of summarizing some things here. And in verse number 2, he reminds them, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. So remember, they were dealing with false prophets and issues in the church, and which could split the church and get people gossiping about each other and talking about each other. And he says, no, you need to be praying for each other. And he says, prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. John MacArthur has a comment on that verse. He says this concerning that verse. What does that mean to watch in the same? This is his thought. He said, in its most general sense, this means to stay awake while praying. But Paul has in mind the broader implication of staying alert for specific needs about which to pray rather than being vague and unfocused. That's his interpretation on the verse that says, continue in prayer and watch in the same. Watch. Be, be aware. Don't, don't, don't be an ostrich with, with your head in the sand and not g- knowing what's going on around you. Be alert to what's going on around you and then pray. Pray for things specifically. So again, this, this, uh, this book could just as easily have been written to us. We need to take it as such, and when he tells them to be faithful and pray, then you and I need to pray. Let me just ask you: how's your prayer life? If you're like most people, it probably ebbs and flows. That's true with preachers too. That sometimes, boy, we get praying and we we get a season where we're just faithful and for whatever reason we go through a drought, and it kind of dries up. Well, don't let it defeat you. Don't let it stop you. Just determine, no, I'm going to start. i got to recommit myself. i got to press. Sometimes in life, we got to press the prayer reset button in our own lives and get back to praying as we should and as we know we ought. But then we come to verses 3 through 6, which is what I want to focus on for just a little while. Because Paul has told the Colossians to pray. And basically what he's saying here, by the way, while you're praying, pray for me. Pray for those that are with me, my my associates, Timothy, Titus, and and others. Because he says in verse number 3 on the screen behind me, verse number 3, after telling them to pray, he says, With all, praying also for us. So Paul is asking them for, he's giving one prayer request. He says, and he's praying for one thing. And he's the, the one thing he's he's asking of them is prayer. Now remember he's in prison. I could think of a lot of things. Come see me. Bring me something. You know, I could think of a lot of things to be asking. He asked for prayer. That that speaks of the value of prayer. And then, fascinatingly enough, and this is fascinating here, he's in prison. I mean, prisons aren't pretty places today. I can only imagine how dark, dank, and dirty they were back then. So he's got an opportunity to send some people on the outside a letter. And he says, I want you to pray. Well, I guess we could have thought, well, we can fill in the blank. Come see me. Bring me food. Bring me books. Bring me new clothes. You know, bring he asked for prayer for one thing. And this is fascinating. And it really should convict us that what? That God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. Think about that. for That's worth thinking about on a Wednesday night. You took the time, trouble, and effort to come out on a cold, rainy, snowy night. You know, let God reward you. By just contemplating that Paul in prison has one prayer request and it ain't for any of the stuff that I would have probably asked prayer for. I know me, I'm as carnal as you know. Bring me, bring me a puzzle. <laughs> See, bring me, bring me any. A puzzle, Sharon. I've never done a puzzle, but if I'm in prison, I got time on my hands. I don't have a cell phone, (laughs) a puzzle, something to do. No, but I mean, he asked prayer for that a door would be opened of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. Wow, that's spiritual maturity. That's maturity in the stratosphere. That's a man that really, really gets it. And when I think that I might have asked for a puzzle, if you will, that kind of shows where I am as opposed to where Paul is. But at the same time, it tells me where I need to be and where I ought to be. That he's thinking about eternity. He is thinking about souls. He wanted to share the gospel. He wanted to see people saved. Concerning that statement, here's what Albert Barnes said. He's one of my favorite commentators. Here's what Barnes said about what Paul said there. He said "It's quote. It is remarkable that he did not ask him to pray that he might be released. Why? Why? He did not, he did not, why he did not, That oh, I changed it. Up. Why he did, why he did not, we do not know. Okay, comma's in the wrong spot there. Why he did not, we, why he did not, we do not know. <laughs> We're not ready to move, Tom, put it back. I'm, well, you were trying to help me, but huh? I'm, I'm, I'm really puzzled right now. Why he did, we do not know. But perhaps the desire of release did not lie so near to his heart as the duty of speaking the gospel with boldness. It may be of such more importance that we perform our duty aright when we are afflicted or in trouble than we should be released. He just asked the question here, and by the way, that was copy and pasted, so that's the way it came off the my Bible program, and they got it wrong. Well, they did, but I didn't catch it, so that's that's Sharon's fault. She should have (laughs) proofread it. But let's let's get back to the thought. The fact is, he's in prison. He asked for them to pray for him. He asked for them to pray. One thing, and that he might have an open door to share the gospel. We've got a theme, you know, we got our, had our theme this year, Follow Me, and I've picked out another theme for next year that's very related to this because we need to go from being at this spiritual maturity level to the level that Paul is, where we're thinking that way. I mean, and why wouldn't you think that way when we have the ability to share with people the gospel which will keep them from an eternity in hell? That's not the purpose of our military. It's not the purpose of our government. They're not going to do that. It's not the purpose of our commerce and our economy. There's one, one institution that has that torch, and that's the church. In this community, there are, Churches that don't see that as a mission to share the gospel. I'm sure there are some around here that do. But I'm not so much worried about them as I am for us. Or are, are, are we thinking like Paul? That we have that, that, that heartbeat? So he says that, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. And then he had kind of like two sub-requests under that. That's the general request. And then he gets a little more specific. He says next that his words be clear and evident. I mean, now he's bearing down on this. I mean, he shocked us that he hasn't asked for any kind of gift or help get me out of prison, get me a lawyer or whatever. No, he said, no, if you're going to pray for something for me, pray that I would have an open door. And then he says concerning that, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So he's doubling down on that. He's not going on to something else. And by the way, send me a, a you know a gift package or something. No, he says that I may make manifest as I ought to speak. One writer interpreted that this way. Paul's desire was that he preach plain and in such a clear manner that the gospel would be readily understood. And that should be our prayer. That... We have an open door, that God would give us an open door. It might be sitting in a waiting room. It might be sitting at a table with someone. It might be any opportunity that the Lord gives you, that you're praying for that open door. But then also that we might, as Paul is asking here, that we might speak it properly. That's what he's asking here, that his words be clear and evident, that I might make it manifest as I ought to speak. Lord, give me an open door and help me to not blow it. Lord, help me to say things in the proper way and in an evident way to these people. That was his prayer. And that should be ours. Sometimes we have the opportunity to witness and we don't know what to say to somebody. All the more reason for us to pray. That when that opportunity comes, we have prayed, and God gives us the right words to say. And we know they came from God, and we're confident of that. And we're grateful to the fact that God blessed us with the right words. So he says, pray that I'll have an open door. Beneath that, when that open door comes, help me to say the right thing. And then he says, secondly... That his life represent integrity and trustworthiness. In verse number 5, he now says, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Those that are without, those, those that are not in the fold, in the sheepfold, those that are on the outside, those that are lost, that I will walk in wisdom. When you talk about a person's walk, it's talking about their life, their lifestyle. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time realizing i only have so much time that when i have that open door i will not only say the right thing but my life will be lived such that it will give credibility to what i'm about to say that's what he's saying that he walk he wants them to pray that he will walk live his life in wisdom toward them that are without Again, think about the level of spiritual maturity there. So many Christians today are so petty and small and wrapped up in drama and these issues and what have you and we're wallowing around in the mud and Paul is up here. His concern is, I need an open door. His concern is, I I need to say the right thing. His concern is, I need to live the right way so that my message will have credibility or in the opposite sense that there'll be nothing in my life that'll take away from the message. And so many of us, are worried about this problem, worried about this, worried about that. And yeah, we have to do life, I understand. And Paul had to do life. You know, he's got to dress, he's got to go places, he's got to do things, he's got to, you know, have resources and money coming and going, where am I, he's got to make plans and all that. You know, and I'm not suggesting we become... Some kind of cloistered monks and, you know, we're of no earthly good. We're so heavenly minded. But there's a balance there. Now, what about those of us that never think like this? Never pray like this? It it, 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 It should convict us. Quoting Barnes again, he says, No professing Christian can possibly do good to others who does not live an upright life. If you have cheated a man out of ever so small a sum, it is vain that you talk to him about the salvation of his soul. If you have failed to pay him a debt when it was due, or to finish a piece of work when you promised it, or to tell him the exact truth in conversation, it is vain for you to endeavor to induce him to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that we have to live perfect lives, because that's impossible. But it's not impossible to live a Christian life. And that when you do mess up, you acknowledge it, you ask forgiveness, and you move on. He says redeeming the time. It means take advantage of those, look for those opportunities. Again, Paul is in prison. He's thinking about practical things. Employers, take care of your employees properly. Christians in the church, make sure you're praying. And when you pray, pray for me. And what I want you to pray is that God will give me an open door to witness. And when I witness, would you pray that I say the right things in the right spirit? And would you pray that my life would give credibility to what I'm witnessing to them about? And then in this passage, in verse number 6, he wraps up what he's saying to them about prayer and witnessing. He says, now let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. He said, pray for me that I'll speak right. He said, but make sure you're doing that too. Make, make sure your speech is the way it ought to be. Folks, we, we live in a terrible time now where it seems to be real popular for people to say, I just speak my peace. I just let them have it. You know, I, I'll just tell them like it is. And people take great pride in that. We Christians have instructions. Okay, we're, we're blessed. We got the manual. Our instructions are quite different from that. It doesn't matter how loudmouth people are, how how vulgar they are. It doesn't matter how popular that is. You, you know, they're they're popularizing. I mentioned this from the pulpit a few months ago. They're popularizing vulgarity. That they say, you know, politicians should throw in some some expletives in in their in their speeches because it shows that you're passionate about what you're doing. That ain't us we got something better. In fact, that, that's taking us down the road to oblivion. That, that's going to corrupt society, make, make, make civil society unsustainable, and life's going to get really, really hard when employers are at employees' throats and employees are at employers' throats and riots are breaking out and things get ugly and heated. And, you know, when, when the world is cut completely loose from the anchor of Christianity, then it just becomes a power struggle. And it can turn physical. It's just power. So he says, let your speech be always with grace. See, that's that's not us. We're, We're different. Grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how to answer every man. He said we should cultivate gracious speech so that our conversation be appropriate with everybody we talk to. So, on this cold, wintry November night, what have we learned tonight? Some important truths. And for some of you, you've already known these truths, so important reminders. Number one, employers are to treat employees fairly. Number two, church members are to be faithful in prayer. Number three, we should pray for witnessing opportunities. Number four, when we witness, we must speak uh, carefully and graciously. When we witness, our lives should give credibility to the gospel. We learn that tonight. And by God's grace, we need to live it. Beginning tonight. A reminder that the light of the world has shone through Christ, has shone through His Word. We have it. We need to learn it. We need to love it. And we need to live it. So, as we close, if Paul's one prayer request in prison was that he have an open door of In other words, opportunities to share the gospel. Every one of us in this room ought to be praying that prayer. We were reminded of it tonight. Maybe we've done it before. Maybe it's been a long time, though, since we've done it. And I have found when I pray that prayer, it is usually most always answered shortly thereafter. I have prayed that. I don't pray it as much as I should. I'm under conviction tonight. But when I have prayed that prayer, Lord, give me an open door. It's amazing how soon thereafter it is obvious. Oh, I prayed and here is an obvious opportunity. Here is an obvious answer to prayer. And then it should be, Lord, help, me, help my words to be gracious and proper and help my life Lord, give credibility to what I am sharing with this individual. And if all of us pray that prayer regularly, those opportunities will come. And you'll come back and you'll be sharing with me and others, guess what happened? I led somebody to the Lord. If we start praying that prayer, you will st- we will start hearing those reports. Guaranteed. Let's stand, please, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.